You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Chris Fetters of Dogman.com, and I am here with the head of hoops, Aaron Beach. It's time for that yearly autopsy, that... uh, that kind of looking back, reviewing what happened with Washington basketball for the 2020-2021 season. And when we look at this particular corpse, Aaron, it's, um, it's pretty rotten already. I mean, we're, we're, we're less than, uh, two weeks, two weeks out of the season being over. And, uh, it's pretty nasty looking back on this thing. I mean, I was just looking before I talked to you, just looking kind of at the all time stuff and, you know, they finished this season five and 21, um, four and seven home, one and nine away. You know, the one win was at Washington State. So I think there are some, you know, if there was ever going to be a, a one away win in a season, I think Washington fans would probably want to be, uh, having that take place in Pullman. But you, you know, again, you have to go back 1994 with Bob Bender's first year is the last time Washington only won five games. And then before that, you have to go all the way back to 1918 to, 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 to view a Washington basketball team that won five games or less. And that was in a 12 game season. So I guess first and foremost, I'm kind of setting it up for you a little bit, but, uh, a little underhand softball question. When, uh, Cole Bajima hit that three to end the season against Utah in the Pac 12 tournament, what was your initial thoughts when you took a deep breath? <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> no, you, you, you and thousands of other people, I think. Yeah, it was a, it was a sigh of relief. Like, just let's get this over with and and get things pointed back in the right direction. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just summed it up with those you know historic stats right there, Chris. This is a historically bad season for Washington. Um, and I guess the good news for me was I spent so much time fast forwarding on the DVR that, you know, maybe I'm not going to retain nearly as much of this pain <laughs> as I normally would have. But, uh, yeah, glad it's over. Um, you know, we can at this point start, you know, digesting and looking forward. And at the same time, you can't really look forward until you understand where things went wrong. And they went wrong in so many places that, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to pinpoint where to start. Yeah, well, we can we can break down the stats in terms of by conference in the Pac-12 how things were for Washington this year. Scoring offense, they were tenth. Scoring defense, they were twelfth by almost two points a game. Scoring margin, twelfth by minus ten points a game. Free, yeah, free throw percentage, tenth. Field goal percentage, tenth. Field goal percentage defense, 11th. Three-point field goal percentage, 8th. Three-point percentage defense, 5th, which <laughs> might come as a bit of a surprise. To you. It is. That is uh, rebounding off, but rebounding offense, 10th. Rebounding defense, 11th. Rebounding margin, 12th. Minus 8 rebounds a game. Um, just rolling through those, I... And it's not going to, you know, come as any shock to any Washington fan that followed the basketball team this year. Things just 
really fell apart on the defensive end. It was, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about the offense and how slow it was out of the gate, but eventually they found their footing a few games in, um, were able to come up with some things to, to create a manageable scoring offense, but the defense, I mean, they've hung their hat on that defense for the first two years of Mike Hopkins tenure. And then it is just, I mean, the last year and a half, it's almost undescribable how far off a, off a cliff that defense has fallen. Yeah, and, and you know the sad thing was um, it wasn't for lack of trying, right? There, the effort was in a lot of cases there. It was inconsistent, but we saw these guys fighting. You know, when they were down 25, 30 points in a game, they weren't hanging their head on the sideline and quitting. We didn't see that, and so I guess that's the one encouraging takeaway I can, I, you know, we could say about this this particular roster. But at the same time, for a customer, a customer, a, a coach that's, um, you know, the hallmark of what he does is his defense. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. I'm baffled. The roster is completely misaligned with the goals of the zone. They don't have the length of the size or the athleticism to, to run it effectively, which is why I think we saw that matchup, you know, the, the man, you know, later on in the season, um, simply because the zone wasn't working. And the question you now have to ask yourself is moving into next season, how does any of that change? How does any of this change? Um, you know, you're adding Jackson Grant, but beyond that, you know, Hawkins is his own guy. You know, that's his principle. And, um, as much as I like seeing in the mix, seeing the, the man to man defense mixed in, um, you know, that's part of the big appeal to what he does and what makes him different. So, um, you know, at least as the roster's currently constructed right now, I don't see it getting any better next season, at least on the defensive front. Well, we're, we're certainly going to come to the to the roster construction for next year in a little bit. We're still trying to kind of figure out what went wrong in the 2020-2021 season, and obviously you've, you've put a real fine point on it, and I mentioned the defense, but yes, there's no doubt when – you start a season and your starting five are going to be Quad A Green, Jamal Bay, Eric Stevenson, Hamir Wright, and Nate Roberts. You're wondering, okay, there's no length really on the outside. So you don't have that Matisse Thibel type of difference maker with his length to create steals, to create deflections, to do those types, types of things that will create transition opportunities, which is what they obviously desperately needed to start the season out. Um, but you obviously don't have that, that real, enforcer inside Nate Roberts can become that guy in time but he was a first time uh, starter for the beginning of the season which was difficult and then you've got Hamir Wright who's really an outside he's more of a wing a bigger wing than a true interior defender um and then and then obviously the foul trouble you know was one of those things that they just could not get over at all um and when they only could really rely on Wright and Roberts as their main kind of defenders and, and guys that could try to rebound a little bit. I think we saw Stevenson become a little bit of a better rebounder. Bay at times showed mm-hmm. some rebounding prowess, but he was so inconsistent in so many different areas. We can come to him in a little bit as well. You're right. The roster construction was set up a little funky for that patented two, three zone, that Syracuse zone that Hopkins brought with him. What do you feel like it was obviously obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but do you feel like at the time was it easy to see 
that the zone just wasn't going to work in the same way it had before because they didn't have that Thibault. They didn't have that Jaden McDaniels. They didn't have that Isaiah Stewart. They didn't have those guys that really could affect the way teams tried to attack the zone in the past? Well, yeah, but that's, you know, those were, you knew those guys weren't going to be around, right? You knew they were one-and-done lottery picks. So that was something that should have been, you know, projected into the roster construction for this season. So to me, that's one of the things that is most confounding is you knew what was coming down the pike, and you know what your system requires. How did you not recruit to that? Um, so yeah, Chris, I, I, I still struggle with that. And I look at this roster and I go, this is something, this is what you'd see at Washington state or, you know, schools that really can't pull, you know, top talent or size and athleticism. Um, you know, so I, I'm just confused by the makeup of the roster, why anyone thought this was going to be the right complexion of players to be successful um, understanding that, you know, there were some obstacles coming out of last season and the way it ended. But still, I, I know your system. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, too, because I'm not going to – I fully agree with that. But I am going to – I am going to go a little bit of devil's advocate here just to just to offer an off uh, and kind of an alternate thing here. First couple games, and, and again, I think Hopkins also alluded to the fact that they didn't really have an offseason or a non-conference slate that they could have really sunk their teeth into because of the pandemic. They were going to yeah. have those couple early games at uh, Hackett or Alaska Airlines Arena. That was going to maybe give them a little bit of a softer landing in, but he instead decided to, to put arguably them up against the number one team in the country at the time or number two, uh, Baylor, where they got, you know, whomped in Vegas. And then the Riverside game was just a super weird outlier game. They only scored 42 points in that game. Couldn't hit water if they fell out of a boat. Um, so it was a super bad start. And then they lose at Utah by 14, which, okay, that's usually not what would happen. But, again, because they were so poor at Riverside, I, I chalked that up to a bit of a hangover. <laughs> we were, weren't we feeling like that Utah was kind of a win? At yeah, the point, but it, at, at the time, at the time, it, it felt like, okay, they're, it, it's slow, but it was slight progress. And then they get that six day stretch where they're not doing anything but coming home to Seattle and practicing. And then they take Seattle U to the woodshed and beat them by 32. And remember, they're still playing the zone. And it's not like, uh, granted, Seattle U's not Oregon. They're not Arizona. They're not USC. They're not Stanford. They're not any of the other teams that they would face in the Pac 12. They're not Colorado. They're not Utah. But at the same time, you, they haven't beaten them by 32 points in the past. They just haven't. Oh, Seattle usually plays Washington really tough. So what, what it ended up being was, is that the Seattle U game became the outlier. We just didn't know it at the time. We just thought, okay, equilibrium has been restored. They're back to where they should be. They're, they're kicking butt. They're, they're getting scoring from all the different places that they need to. They finally were able to make some shots, which they hadn't been able to do in the first three games. And then losing to Oregon by three, the next game out in Seattle was like, okay, that's a bummer. That's that you always want to beat them. But at the same time, losing by them by three. It was a 50 50 game. It was a toss up. It was those kind of games that hop kind of made his living on the first two years. They would find a way to win those games the first two years. For some reason, they couldn't find a way to get over the hump in that game. Then, to me, 
the loss to Montana really started to show where the serious cracks were in terms of them not, you know, they had played two really good games against Seattle U and Oregon. That, that should have been a platform to them to stabilize things, to get things off on, on a better footing. But when you lose to Montana in the way they did, and then you go back to Vegas and you lose to Colorado by 23, I mean, that's when the wheels fell off for me. And it was clear that the zone wasn't going to do anything for this team going forward. Yep. I no. I mean, I think you broke it down pretty well, Chris. And um, I, I remember you and I doing a pod and getting all caught up in uh, what, when was it that Sahonis had that big breakthrough game? I thought it was against Stanford or Cal. I couldn't remember which one afterwards, but it was pretty close to after that point where Sahonis had the big game. And then obviously Stevenson had a big game. But it was one of those where they had one guy had big, had huge games, but the rest of the team wasn't necessarily getting picked up by them. Right. Yeah, so it was like Nate Pryor's big game. I think where we went, Oh, what is going on? Here's yeah. something. Right. But it was like one, but it was only like one guy that was stepping up. And for a long time, we felt like, okay, this is good that teams can't necessarily target just quad a green, for instance. You know, they, they have to focus on these other guys because we know now that Eric Stevenson can go for 25, 27. We know that Marcus Sahonis can go for 27, 29. We know that even, you know, I mean, Hamir Wright getting 18 at Arizona in his last game finally started making some threes and started, finally started kind of doing all the things that I fully expect Hop was, was expecting him to do all year long, but literally didn't do it until the last regular season game. So, um, it just was one of those things where they were, the offense came along, you know, because even, even after the Arizona game, when they lost by 27, after that Colorado debacle, you know, they go to Stanford, they score 75, they go to Cal or sorry, they play Stanford, they lose, they score 75. And then they go at Cal and they score 78. They, you know, they have a drop off against Southern Cal, but Southern Cal is just an absolute super awful mismatch for them playing the zone. I mean, yeah. the Mobley brothers just slice and dice Ginsu style. It was awful. But then they, you know, that's when, and then it was Quad A who had the big game against UCLA, almost drug them over the line. They score 76 and then they go 84 and 83 in their two home wins against Colorado and Utah. So they found their shooting boots. They found their, their, their ability to score. That wasn't the problem. The problem was at the time, starting with the Colorado game, they gave up 92, 80, 91, 84, 95, 81, 80. You know, even in the wins, they were giving up 80 and 79 points. You, you, there's just, it's just so antithetical to what Hopkins is all about. And obviously at its core, that's the main thing that completely fell apart. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, agree completely. And I, I would, I guess I'd add that, um, boy, I, I really struggled with their cohesion. I, you know, even after they had that run of promising games and they looked like things were sinking, um, you could see that they all weren't throughout the season. They weren't on the same page. They never really got comfortable with each other, particularly on the defensive side. They couldn't close on the shooters in the corners. Um, and I guess, what surprised me most is you have some beef in the middle between um, 
you know, Robertson and Riley Sorn. And I was disappointed that as promising as Riley was, you know, offensively at times, he was, he's a terrible defender and can't hold his own underneath the paint and can't block shots. And I, so I, I thought he would be more of a difference maker as he, as the season went on and his minutes actually diminished over time. Um, so that one surprised me a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, Roberts too, even though he's a, he's a tank, you keep seeing that comparison to Dwight Howard, which kind of drives me nuts. I mean, yeah, if you put a, you know, under armor on a, under armor on a seven foot mannequin in a store, it's going to look pretty badass. But, um, that's not how he plays. And so I see that there's a lot of physical potential there, but at the same time, he didn't come anywhere near to delivering you know, what I think we all expected him to. Right. I, what I want to know is at UCLA was when they started to throw that match, that kind of matching man thing where they kind of look like they're going to start in the 3-2 or the 2-3, and then obviously it, it looks like it morphs into a man, but it's like a matching man in the sense that they're literally trying to get matchups with certain guys so that they don't, you know, but at the same time they were mm-hmm. switching a lot up top. And they were doing some different things. When you saw that that kind of switching man or that that match uh, type of defense that they were throwing at teams, starting with UCLA, what was your initial thought? Did you did you think it was uh, something that they were that that you thought they had a chance of doing well at, or did you think that it was just simply another band aid on top of a that, bullet hole? Yeah, the latter. I thought it was more necessity. Um, you know, and, and part of the, my pessimism was the fact that they looked so bad in man last season. Um, so I didn't really have any faith that, you know, that was something they could achieve, you know, at least, yeah. you know, and, but, and I was a little bit surprised by, you know, the overall contribution. And some of that had to do with Eric Stevenson, who, who's a pretty good on ball defender. Um, so, you know, the, their physical makeup is leans much more towards, you know, man, than it does the zone. But at the same time, you've either got to commit to it or you don't. You can't do it, as you said, as a Band-Aid. Um, I'd like to see a mix moving forward because I think that suits the West Coast a lot better than, you know, full-time zone. But, um, you know, that's just me. Yeah, it was interesting, too, because obviously that, that match was featured in the two wins they got against Colorado and Utah. But then after that, they got, you know, I mean, they got pummeled. I mean, they got pummeled by... Wazoo by 15 in Seattle. They, they lost by 20 at Oregon State. They lost by 12 at Oregon. Um, it wasn't until starting with the, the USC UCLA swing in Seattle where it really felt like that match defense was taking hold and they kind of finally understood the nuances of it or at least were proficient enough in it where they could get some stops. And, and that's the problem. The problem is, is that it took them six games for them to get there. And yes, they won two of those games, which is, you know, crucial. But the, the four games after that or the three games after that just were, they looked as bad as they looked when they were in the zone. And I think ultimately that was the other thing that killed them too was it didn't matter if they were playing zone or the match. They were wildly inconsistent because starting with that, the, the swing with the LA schools in Seattle, you know, they go from 86 at Oregon to 69 against a USC team that, you know, was in the, the Pac-12 finals and, and, and probably should have won really. Um, or they, sorry, they were in the semifinals. They, they should have beaten Colorado, but you know, I mean, this is arguably the best team in the Pac-12 USC and they went from giving up what 95 
against them in LA to 69 in Seattle? How do you do? I mean, I'm sorry, but ultimately that's the thing that's the most confounding for me is that how do you get a defensive effort where you're giving them 95 points to a team one day and then 69 like a month later? Or how do you give up, you know, 97 points to Arizona State and then literally two days later give up 80? You know, well, you literally go from Arizona State, that first game at Arizona State, you lose by 33 points, and then two days later, you're tied with a minute left in the game. That, I mean, and that's the thing that I just, as hard as this team played, there was no consistency, no continuity. There were, it, it just felt like you, you didn't really, you didn't have a clue as to which Washington team was going to show up from one game to the next. Well, and I think also you had inconsistency in the lineup itself, right? You had, you know, guys being shuffled in and out for various reasons, whether it be, you know, Sahonis for, or, or Raekwon or, you know, it, it, a lot of it was experimentation, but there was a lot of stuff going on beside, behind the scenes too, or you could sense that there was because of the inconsistencies there as well. Like why, you know, the shuffling in and out in the starting lineup. So I, um, you know, I, it, it's tough to pin that down, Chris. I don't really know. I, I think more was just a lack of talent. Sometimes they got hot and, and, but you know, it's basketball and matchups are matchups. But, right. um, but well, and just because, to put a fine point on it, you were talking about the, you know, not having necessarily a, a set group of starters and what have you. They, you know, I'm not, and I'm not going to count Travis Rice in this because obviously he was a senior day starter, but they had nine other guys that started games. Right. So their main five were, were Quad A, Jamal Bay, Eric Stevenson, Hamir Wright, and Nate Roberts. They, they started, I think, 22 of the 26 games. But well, you got Sahonis, Sahonis had starts. Raekwon Battle had a start. Nate yeah. Pryor had a couple starts. Jerron Brooks had a start. So yeah, there was some tr- starting of, of mixing and matching just a little bit. And I think some of that, I think Quad A was, was sick. One of those, one or two of those games where, where Hop had to maybe align his, his starting lineup a little different than he would normally. But yeah, I think they, they were fairly consistent in who I think they wanted to start, but they, I think it was the rotation as much as anything because we mm-hmm. saw, you know, we saw some where Sohonis was coming in very early and then we saw some games where Sohonis didn't play at all. Right. I mean, it, that was one of that. You talked about that, that, that big game that Sohonis had. And I, if I remember correctly, it was during the, either one of the California stretches and it was like he had his big game, and then the other game he didn't play. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I guarantee you, if you're a player, that's gotta that's gotta frustrate you. Well, and that I mean, just you know, us knowing what we know about the inner working of a inner workings of a college basketball program, usually that points to you know stuff going on behind the scenes. And I kind of feel like that was the case throughout the season. I, you know, there were times where I would look out on the court and see see guys that I didn't feel really enjoyed playing ball together, you know, and were disjointed at times. So especially as the season wore on, um, I saw that more and more. And uh, I, I think that's that's part of it. The, not only was the roster just kind of built poorly, but I don't think the chemistry was there either. And maybe some of that had to do with the fact, not maybe, some of that did have to do with the fact that COVID limited, you know, your preseason work. Um, and you can't do the things you normally do to build a team, particularly when you got a lot of new faces. So I guess that shouldn't be surprising, but it doesn't 
you know, it's, it's still just an excuse. Yeah. Well, they, they, it's, it's ironic because there's no question that the pandemic hit them hard in many ways and affected everyone in many ways. Oh, for sure. There's no doubt about it. And, and I don't know how it was necessarily unique to Washington other than the scheduling part of it. That, that piece was very different because they went from having two or three games in that, in that preseason tournament in Alaska Airlines arena where they could have found themselves maybe a little earlier, tried to, you know, get these guys going in a positive way. But instead they don't get that game. So then Hopkins lines up a game against Baylor in Vegas that I think in hindsight, he realizes kind of set them up for failure. And he's, yeah. and he's even admitted that it was a mistake on his part or a mis, a, a miscalculation. I don't know how he described it, but it was something that certainly in hindsight, it was, it was not the thing that, that put them off on, on the right footing, which again, we have to remember when they had McDaniels, they had Stewart, they played Baylor. It's still a very, I don't know if they were number two in the country at the time, but they were still extremely talented. They played him in that tournament in Anchorage and beat him. Yep. So, you know, this is, he's trying, I think he was trying to use some ideas and thoughts that, that worked well with the other teams. But to your point, he was doing it with talent that was not clearly at the level of a Stewart, McDaniels, what have you. Um, so I think, um, I don't really want to dwell too much more on the, on the 2020, 2021 <laughs> season. I think we can, we can now officially put it in the box where it belongs and stick it in the corner and, and never talk about it ever again. But, um, but Beach, what I want to do is after this quick break, I want to talk now about the steps going forward. You know, what happens with the coaching changes? What happens with the player changes? What types of things are you, are you hoping to see going forward in this offseason as they move into, you know, a situation where they clearly have a lot of steps to go to improve and get better because um, I don't think there's any question that, that Mike Hopkins is going to be on the hot seat big time uh, if things don't improve uh, moving forward. So um, we'll be right back in just a second for Aaron Beach. This is Chris Fetters of Dogman Radio. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, this is Chris Fetters. Coming back, Dogman Radio with the head of Hoops, Aaron Beach. We have kind of dissected and uh, kind of put that aside, the 2020-2021 season. Uh, we're, we're done talking about that. It's 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 kind of sad, honestly, to, to kind of look back and, and see what happened and, and see how far this team has fallen. But um, there's a chance they can come back. I mean, this is... Just like Hopkins, you know, in his first year, he took a team that, um, boy, I mean, they were not very good in that last season under Lorenzo Romar. They only won nine games. And that same team he took to the NCAA tournament two years later. So there's there's a chance that this team could come back with a lot of the same pieces. But, Beach, we know for a fact that Quadia Green's not coming back. We know for a fact Amir Wright's not coming back. We know for a fact that Jackson Grant, the 6'9", 6'10", 
forward from Olympias coming in. He looks to me like another version of Hamir Wright. Uh, a guy. No, 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 no. Hang on. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is he's got the scoring touch from outside. He's not, a, he's not going to be a big banger. He's not going to be, but he's going to offer some other things that Hamir didn't offer, but he's going to play. And again, I don't know if they're going to do the match. I don't know if they're going to do the zone because if he was going to do the zone, he would be in that kind of protected Isaiah Stewart area where you wouldn't want him in the middle. You'd have Nate Roberts in the middle and you'd have him on one of the lower block wings, you know, covering the corners using his length. Cause that's, you know, he is a guy with length that you would think that, that in normal circumstances, that's a guy that, that uh, Mike Hopkins would recruit for the zone. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and I would, so I would cost, I mean, I don't think he's anything like Kamir Wright. Um, to be honest, he does have outside skills, but Chris, he's, he's polished underneath the basket too. And I, while I agree with you, he's not necessarily a banger. He's got moves underneath the hoop. And oh, so I'm not I haven't seen say, him in yeah, the last I'm, year. I know so. he's got a, he's got an offensive skill set. I know he's got moves, post moves and those things. So in that way, he's, he's a little bit more highly developed. Then Hamir Wright, I mean, he's played at the USA level. You know, he's gone to those camps. So I know he comes in with a little higher pedigree, even though, again, to credit to Hamir Wright, he was Gatorade State Player of the Year in New York, and that's not exactly a small thing. Right. Uh, he was considered a pretty darn good player coming out of high school. But um, I think I get the sense that, that, that Jackson Grant really fits the bill in what Hop is looking for in terms of the all-around player. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Hamir, for all his talents and everything, defensively, he regressed. He looked like he was one of Washington's best defenders a couple of years ago and just slowly but surely kind of lost that edge. Um, yeah, I kind of I kind of saw Darnell Gant is kind of what I was hoping yeah. to see out of Hamir right as he developed. Yeah. Because um, yeah. they have a lot of similarities, even dimension-wise. Um, but uh, where Darnell really... Uh, you know, came into his own as a senior, you know, junior year, late junior year, but as a senior, particularly, and took a lot of pride in, in defense, um, but was knocking down threes at a little bit better pace than Hamir as well. But um, yeah, I, I, I kind of was on the upside. I thought we'd see Darnell Gant out of Hamir. We didn't see it. We just saw a uh, very limited three point shooting um, wing where, who, who had little capability under the basket and, and Washington suffered for it. Yeah, and so like I said, I, I think that Jackson Grant certainly fits the bill of a guy that can slide into Hamir Wright's position and offer some unique things. Uh, yes. And hopefully he's as you know, hopefully he's a you know can offer better shooting. Hopefully he's he can offer upgrade. a better post game. Those types of things. Um, you know, in terms of how they replace a guy like Quad A, uh, what's your initial thoughts in terms of where they go there? Because it feels to me. Like Sahonis or Nate Pryor are the guys that immediately slide into that spot. And it's basically well, free for all, take your pick. And then I would think Nate Pryor would be the ideal guy with Marcus playing off him in the two where he could score. But Marcus has really shown himself to be a guy that not only can run the offense, but almost kind of thrives in scoring off of running the offense, like kind of the way Nigel Williams Goss used to do. Yeah, so I guess I, I disagree with you on the prior front. I don't I don't really see him as a factor next season. I just don't think he's good enough. Okay. And that's an unfortunate statement. But um I didn't see enough out of him this season to think he has any real future 
you know, in the rotation. That's my, now, if things stay where they are, they need him just because they don't have the bodies. But I believe that Washington will probably um, bring in a couple of guys. But let's stick with uh, who we, who and what we know right now. Um, so I would say, yeah, you're right. Sahonis, they don't have a point guard. Washington doesn't have a point guard right now. They've got a bunch of combo guards, um, whether it be Stevenson or Sahonis. Um, you know, it's kind of like that Justin Dittman paradigm, right? Where Dittman was great, you know, as a complimentary, um, uh, you know, outlet, you know, rather than being a full-time point guard. And, and I see those guys both, uh, Sahonis and Stevenson in that regard. Um, my guess is Sahonis starts at the point, whether he or Stevenson's the primary ball handler. I don't know. I don't know that it really matters. I think they're, you know, they're ultimately pretty similar players. Um, Washington, in my opinion, needs to go out and find someone for the point guard. Yeah. Well, one thing I think that, that Stevenson needs to get a lot of credit for is that he's a heck of a passer. He, he can dish. Um, he was second on the team in assists behind Quad A. Um, so he was able to find guys if he wasn't shooting himself. It's just the, you know, you cannot thrive when you're shooting 30% from three and, 30, key. and 36% from the field right. as, as, as a kind of, as a scoring guy that Stevenson is. I mean, yeah. he, his percentages are going to have to go way up because, you know, basically Quade Green and Eric Stevenson were almost identical in terms of from the three point line. I mean, Quade made 36, Eric made 37 and they both shot anywhere from 30 to 31%. I mean, they were right basically there. But Stevenson shot 36% from the field beach. Quad A shot 60 points higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, and you, so I'm with you. Uh, you know, or Stevenson isn't, isn't a guy you want shooting 15, getting 15 field goal attempts a day a game. You just, you can't do that. And there's nothing in his history in his three years so far that tells us that he's a high percentage shooter, has that in his bag. Well, if you, yeah, if you take the 26 games that he played this year, the one thing offensively that I can take away from him is that he's probably good for, you know, eight points a game on average. But if he's hot, you feed him because he can go for mm-hmm. 25. We saw that. Yep. But he, so he's one of those guys that is going to be a complimentary scorer. I don't think Washington this coming season can rely on him to be their go-to guy. They need to have uh, that go-to guy, and right now I think that go-to guy is pretty easy. It's got to be Sahonis. It has to be, but, um, again, I think there's – I mean, to me, when I look at Sahonis, I see a lack of maturity, and that's where, you know, I think he needs to evolve, evolve and grow because he's clearly talented. Um, he's, I think, easily the most talented guy on the roster currently. Maybe Bay, but I, I think it's Sahonis. But um, – I'm not sure that, you know, Sohonis really understands the nuances of the game and particularly running the, you know, running the team where you want to put him in that role and depend on him regularly. And that would be my biggest reluctance in terms of Sohonis. I, I, I like him a lot as a player. Um, I think he's got a, you know, he's got an awful lot of capabilities and there are very few players who can put up 30 in a game. Um, Sohonis has that ability. And Washington needs that. But at the same time, when you look at that backcourt, really the whole roster outside of Jackson Grant, the ceiling is so low, um, you know, in terms of upside. You know, these guys are what they are for the most part. I think Badgema, Badgema's probably got more in the tank there. 
But for the rest of the team, they're what they are. You know, I don't see Roberts um, or maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to expect from Riley next season, but I, I don't see like a big jump or all of a sudden we're talking about all conference, you know, type of accolades. There's nobody on this roster currently where I think that's a possibility. And so with that in mind, you know, if you're going into next season mostly intact with what you've got this season, you're, you know, bottom two or three in the conference again. Um, so they need upgrades pretty much all over the place. Well, going back to like Sahonis and Bay and those guys, the one thing is, is Marcus Sahonis, he's going to shoot his shot. I mean, that's the one thing that's abundantly clear. And that's one of the few guys that comes back that is going to do that. Cause for instance, Jamal Bay played over 10 minutes more per game than Marcus Sahonis did over the course of the entire season. Their shooting numbers in terms of, of shots taken, basically identical. Marcus Sahonis took 199 field goal attempts. Jamal Bay took 201. And, and like I said, Jamal Bay averaged more like basically 11 minutes more per game. I mean, and for a guy that was shooting 46% from the field and over almost 51% 50, from three, yeah. I mean, one of the things that Mike Hopkins has to do in Jamal Bay is he's got to bump his <laughs> confidence up. Shoot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to me, that's a that's a no brainer. He's got to get yep. he's got to get up five more shots a game minimum, probably three more shots a game from three minimum. Um, yeah, I just don't understand the reluctance. I mean, I I, 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 I have to believe that's a personal confidence thing, and I think, frankly, Chris, we we talked about Bay in that regard for since he's been here, which was. Looks like there's talent there. There's just mentally he, he lacks the belief in his abilities. And, boy, we saw it this season. When he shoots the ball, it goes. And they needed it so bad. But if even given the circumstances this season, if you can't coax him to shoot the ball more, um, you know, that's why I have a hard hard time believing we're going to have – we're looking at any breakthrough next season because that's a – he's kind of locked in and wired the way he is as far as I can tell. Yeah, and I just I'm trying to think of guys that have kind of come out of their shell, you know, in their final years and have really exploded and, and kind of come out of the of the gates and, and I don't know, like maybe a Bobby, like a Bobby Jones type or something. I, I don't know. But, Scott Suggs had a pretty big jump between junior and senior year, but that's because his junior season contributions were so pitiful and I, relative yeah, and I'm to sure his talent. People, hopefully people that are listening to the, the to the podcast will Maybe come up with some some ideas of guys that have been able to maybe blossom or just kind of get out of their own head a little bit because I think that yes I know that they've been really coached into that you know that extra pass you know turn a good good shot into a great shot and those kinds of things and I get all that but I'm sorry if you're Jamal Bay and you're shooting 51 percent from three hoist it please. (laughs) I, I get, I get you don't want to always do it with a, with a hand in your face and all that stuff. But if you've got any room at all and it looks reasonable, you gotta, you gotta pull the trigger. That, well, that cause it seems obvious. Yeah. Well, cause otherwise you're looking at guys that, you know, are shooting 50, 20% um, lower from the floor. That's the, that's the shot you're giving up when you're bay passing up on a decent look. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, before we finish off with the players, I kind of want to get a sense of who you think Washington's starting five will be next year with, again, let's talk about the guys that they have coming back. Okay. I mean, we will, we will focus on 
um, how you feel like they can restructure some of the things that they need to restructure. But because they've got a lot of pieces coming back already. Um, I'm kind of wondering who you think their starting five should be right out of the gate. Okay. Well, let's see. So I'm going to say that obviously Jackson Grant, he's going to play as many minutes as his legs allow. And so he's, he's going to get 30, he slides, again. He slides right into that four, right? And we're, yep. we're playing. Yep. Okay. Roberts will start at the center spot. Um, see, so here's where I think I might differ from you is I'm going to say that it probably you got Bajima and Bay potentially starting both of them in the backcourt. Uh, yeah. And then maybe Stevenson. I, that's they need to be longer. They need to be bigger. And I think Bajima, like I said, is the one that's got the upside there. So I think there's going to be a case for playing him a lot more next season. Um, you know, because frankly, just because I don't see Sahonis and Stevenson being particularly, um, I just don't see them playing all that well together. They're pretty similar in a lot of regards. Um, you know, the the challenge is that Bajima is a guard offensively, but he has the handle of a forward. So he's got to dramatically, if, if there's a limitation I see with him, it's his, it's his dribbling. So he needs to improve his ball handling skills quite a bit. But um, I, I think they need that. Maybe he comes off the bench and you go Bay, Sohonis, and, um, <clears throat> and Stevenson. But I don't know that that's – that means you got all your talent on the floor, you know, your best talent on the floor. Now, granted, I don't think any of that happens. I think they go out and get a couple of guys, and those are your starters. But right okay. now, it's those six guys, I think, that are contending for the starting job. I agree. I think that there's no doubt that those guys are, are the, the – now, the question is, who's the sixth man? I, I may be throwing out a hot take here because I, I don't know how people necessarily feel about him um, coming off the bench as opposed to starting – I got Eric Stevenson as my sixth guy. I think yeah. he's got to prove he's got to prove to me that he can come out and be instant offense and score and provide more energy on the defensive end. Because that's to me the guys that have to come out are the guys that also play on both ends. And to me right now, the guys that play on both ends, if you include Jackson Grant in that equation, it would be Roberts, Grant, Bajima, Sohonis, and Bay. Okay. I go that's, with what that. I, that's what I would go with. Now, I think Bay has really got to up his level. He's got to be Thibel light in many ways. He's got he's got the talent. He's got the length. He can he can he's been in the defense enough to be able to anticipate and and maybe take some more chances. I think he's got to be that guy that helps him a little bit more with the steals and the and the the blocks and the and the, the you know the takeaways because that's the one thing. I mean, defensively. Their takeaway numbers compared to last year and even in the years before, horrific. I mean, that, that's just one of the huge things. They were. Well, the question is, can he be Chris? Can he be a defensive leader? Can he? They didn't have a guy, right? They didn't have the guy last season who was the defensive leader, barking orders and 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 you know elevating the team when they needed it. They didn't have that guy at all. I only they need it. Yeah, to me, they only have one or two of the alpha type guys that alpha dogs that I think you would want in that. Equation and, and granted, that's where Stevenson can make a mark. Exactly. I think Stevenson is one of those guys that has a little bit of edge to him for sure. Um, and we saw it at times a little bit. So that's where it's, you know, to me, it's, it's, it is 50 50. It is the, the six man rotation that we're talking about right now, right off the bat. Cause I think Soren is going to have his place for sure. 
And then you've got to figure out where Pryor and Battle and, and Brooks and those guys fit in. I don't think they do. Well, but right. But I mean, that's, you, we got, you know, at some point you've got to figure out, um, and we'll come to it next, who's coming and going. But, you know, there's, there's some situations where I think the six guys that we talk about, I think we both agree. It's simply in what, what's the manifestation? Who's the right off the bench? Now, to me, you could have Sonus come off the bench right away as instant offense. We know he can do it. He's done it in the past. And, and does it make an impact mentally, um, for either one of these guys that they need to have those starts? Does starting one guy over the other give a boost to one of these guys over the other? Or, or does one of them just say, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to have starters minutes. I don't care if I literally start. I just still want 20 plus minutes a game. You know, that's, that's so, what we have to get into and find out really how much it affects them. So, but here's my question, Chris. If, say those are your six top guys, <laughs> is that enough? How many more wins is that next season? And is it enough to save Hawkins' job? Well, and I'm asking first, first question. I guess first question. But how piece, many more wins is that? But remember, we're not there yet. We're not, we're not done with the full roster construction. I know. I'll I ask know. you, I'll ask you that now. question. I'm going to ask you that question once we're done with how you think this thing is ultimately going to pan out. Because okay, then fine. we'll be talking about, because once we start talking about the construction of, of who we think is coming and going, now we're starting to delve into the realm of the hypotheticals and, and kind of using our own, um, insight and also what we've heard behind the scenes to kind of get a better idea of how we think Hop might approach this offseason. Fine. Um, then I'm going to answer my own question. I'm going to okay, say well, maybe well, that's 10, that's, that's okay. 10 wins right there. Okay. 10 wins. So ten that's wins. double. You've, you've already doubled. I've doubled. But, that, so, and so, that's my, maybe that's generous because you're so pulling you're in, quad A and it's 16 points a game out of that, that lineup. And anytime a coach doubles his, his output from the season before that, <laughs> that's room for an extension, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. So, so anyways, so let's, so let's move on. We've talked a little bit about the guys coming back. Let's talk about the guys that could end up being the Eric Stevenson's and the Cole Bajima's for the 2021-2022 season. Um, there are already some public names out there that people have talked about that are in the transfer portal. Uh, guys like Terrell Brown, who was at Seattle U, went to Arizona, and he's he's back out. Um, you've got Tari Eason, who played with J.D. Daniels, who went to Cincinnati, and now he's in the portal. Um you can you mention a couple other guys, but who who do you think Washington fans should really start to focus on in terms of guys that can help kind of supplement what the Huskies have and why they would make sense? Well, okay, so I'm gonna starting with those two guys you mentioned because uh, I'm a big fan of bringing home the kids that got away, and both those guys got away. Um, and they, but they and then Washington did that last year with with Stevenson and Bajima, right? Would you, and, they were, and I'm assuming those are guys that you would have wanted to come back, right? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Easton in particular, uh, he fits. He's not the rim defender necessarily, but he is a defensive guy. Even watched him back in high school at Federal Way. Um, you know, he's I think senior year he's in Garfield, but um, you know he's a Federal Way guy and he played with Jaden. Um, he was a defensive monster even back then. Um, he's fairly versatile. You know, in Washington, I think he's probably a, a four-ish. You know, he's kind of a wing, kind of that in-betweeny 
um, you know, six eight, but I bet his, I, I think his wingspan's over seven feet. Um, so he really fits, uh, what Hop wants to do in the zone. Uh, he's got a fairly versatile offensive tool bag. Um, he's, uh, he can shoot it a bit from outside. That's part of the expanding game. But at the same time, he gets most of his work done underneath. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Desmond Simmons in that regard. Could have a similar role. Um, so I like him a lot. I don't know if he's a starter or not right out of the gate. You know, he's probably challenging, um, I guess it'd be Jackson Grant and, uh, boy, maybe even a little bit to a lesser extent, Nate Roberts, you know, for a potential starting role. So I like him a lot. I think he's going to have suitors all over the place. Washington has to be all over him already. Um, but he's going to be able to pick where he wants to go. Um, and I love Terrell Brown. Uh, when they ended up getting prior, I was a bit disappointed because I thought Brown was the guy and he didn't do anything down at Arizona to tell me differently. You know, he ran those rotary, those super talented rotary teams, um, you know, with, uh, with Jalen Noel and Dejon Davis, you know, he was, he was the guy, he was the distributor at that time. And again, he's, I guess not necessarily a natural point guard, but I think he's a better point guard than either Sahonis or Stevenson. Um, the only drawback, the downside to Brown is that, you know, he's six foot and I don't, that that's the challenge for me is in that zone. I think your point guard needs to be six, four, six, five, you know, to run it properly. So that now, would be my now if they want to run the match, they, they can run the match with him because they did it with quad a. Now I'm not saying they had a lot of success with it, but they've, they've done it before. If he wanted to go like for like, and put Brown in the in the quad A seat. Is that yeah, sure. be like for like? Yeah, but I don't think he's so if I'm Hop, I don't think he's my guess is he's he's building the roster around the zone. You know, I think that I, I still believe man to man is a backup plan for him. I and um, I would agree. I'd agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. So so that's the only downside. I I'd take him in a heartbeat. He's a leader you know, um, you know, and he, he was a major contributor. He's, he's been a big dog on a lot of good teams over, you know, since high school. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brown. Okay. Any other names that you'd want to throw out there? Cause I think, I, I know there's obviously been a few that have, are there any that have stuck out in your mind based on when you're kind of a, initial thoughts when you heard that they were in the portal or available? Well, so <laughs> I, you mentioned it and I guess I, I must have missed it is Jacory. Jacory McLaughlin is he in the portal? Uh, good question. I thought that he was, but I, I now I don't that. know. If he is, I mean, he had a monster season, and um, he's another one of those guys that kind of got away. Um, but he fits that six four ish point guard. I mean, he he's a point guard, and he's a scoring point guard, and he's a leader, good athlete, and um, he's another guy that if, if that's the case then he's a guy I look at uh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. There's going to be some guys that are definitely going to be out there. And, and the other thing is we're recording this podcast. This is the first day of the term. This is the first four in um, games like the UCLA Michigan state game. I think is happening later today. You know, th- a lot of movement's going to happen once the, um, you know, once the tournament is over. Yeah. So that's going to be the biggest thing. Um, in terms of guys that, you know, that maybe 
maybe they weren't even on tournament teams necessarily, but they're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen and just kind of see how all the cards kind of lay out on the table and, and where they're, you know, where guys are going to go and what, you know, whose needs are really going to be big time. You know, can they walk in right away and be that guy? Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting on that front. And so clearly, even though there's a couple big names that are already out there right now, I really expect that the list of portal guys that Washington's going to go and be real hot and heavy in, in terms of, of competition to get them to come to UW is going to be much, much bigger once the, once the tournament's over. One thing I would ask you, Beach, and, and I'm not going to ask you to name names because frankly, I don't, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make an editorial decision and say that's, that's unfair to the kids. But in terms of numbers, like one guy, two guys, three guys, four guys, whatever, how many guys do you think off the current roster right now at Washington are going to leave and end up in the portal? Because right now there's none. Nobody has, even though the season has been gone for days and days and days now, there have been no official announcements of guys going into the portal. Um, I fully expect that to change. I think that's just kind of common sense because everyone – Suffer some sort of a church. And I think Washington State has like five guys that are in the portal right now. Um, how many guys do you think will eventually end up in the portal from this current group? Two or three. Okay. Is my guess. Yeah. I think so, two or three. And so you think, you think that means, so they're going to try to pick up two or three guys to fit those needs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I just don't see a future for that. Nah, we want, we don't need to go down that road, but um, right. yeah, I, I think. There's an immediate need for probably two or three guys. Okay, so then finally, to wrap up kind of the player part of this and the recruitment part of this piece, in an ideal world for 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 the head of hoops, for the guy who's really paying attention, the, the hardcore of the hardcore Washington basketball fan, what's your ideal starting five? Because I think – to be honest with you, I think there's going to be maybe one, you know, if there's two or three guys that they pick up each and I'm in agreement with you on the number, I think that is very realistic. I think there's going to be one guy that probably just comes out of nowhere that none of us are even talking about or even knew about. Um, and it's only because of either connections with the current coaching staff or the player just doing his due diligence and seeing what Washington needs and knowing he can be an instant impact guy from day one. Um, I think there's going to be a wild card out there, but given that, given that, I'm just wondering who you think your ideal starting five might be for that first game, given everything we've just talked about. Um, well, so I, and I don't think there's any sure things at all. You can't have any sure things when you've only won five games the previous season. Uh, I think the closest to a sure thing is, uh, Bay will almost certainly start. Um, and, Jackson Grant, I think, is pretty obviously, unless something amazing happens and they find somebody. So here's what I do think could happen. There's a scenario where Hopkins pulls somebody out of the Northeast that we wasn't even in on anybody's radar, um, you know, and uses, utilizes those connections there. I could totally see that happening, uh, with a grad transfer or, you know, the, or the portal. So but in your, in your mind, real quick, just, I don't want to get sidetracked too far. But do you think in that case, is he going to prioritize a point guard or a big? He needs both. Yeah. Both. Yeah, you need you, – I, I think there's an urgent need for a point guard, a big point guard. I think that's really important because um, they don't have it, and I don't think they're going anywhere without it. So, 
if there's one, the first hole they have to fill is that. The second hole they should fill is they need to improve um, defensively, particularly in the middle. So they need a rim defender. Um, Tari Eason, Tari Eason kind of fits that bill, um, kind of. Uh, and then they need a dynamic scoring wing. Um, you know, and that one of all the, so I think they're, the hardest one to find will be the big. Um, I, I think point guard and wing options are available. So you think ultimately it would be Bay and Grant and maybe Roberts or maybe, maybe Roberts, guy. but, but, but you want Eason in that equation. Yeah, he's definitely in the mix. Uh, and then again, I think they've got to go a different route with the point guard and then either Sahonis, Bajima, or, uh, I don't think actually I take that back. Bajima doesn't have the handle that's sort of the two guard, but, um, so either Sahonis or Stevenson at that two guard. And also real quick, Beach, do you think that if they do get a guy like Tari Eason, do you think he, do you think he slots in ahead of a guy like Jackson Grant? That, well, so that's the question. Cause, and no, I don't think so. Cause I think Jackson Grant's probably just that good, but that doesn't mean that they're not complimentary players and that you don't find a role for him elsewhere. Because at the end of the day, Hopkins is going to put the best talent he has on the court. Regardless of, you know, if he's got an overflow of talented guards, he's going to go that route. And the same with the front court. You know, he's got to put the best talent out there, period. He doesn't have the luxury of being clever, you know, with the rotation. Right. Okay, perfect. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. So we're wrapping up the the all that stuff and we're getting to our final topic before we, you know, let everyone go and that is what is coach Hop going to do with his staff? We already saw the first kind of the, the first ball drop um on Wednesday when Cameron Dollar announced via Twitter that he was um going to leave Washington and move on and um work with his youth foundation, which I think is phenomenal. Um, awesome. I think, yeah, awesome. I think everyone needs to pay attention to that. And hold, hold on a second. Said, go ahead. Well, just real quick, but I just wanted to say, so we saw that, that first ball drop and we, we kind of anticipated that was going to happen because he was, he was not traveling with the team. He was, he was very, because of, because of the pandemic, he had made a deliberate decision to opt out of traveling so we could we kind of saw that this was moving in the direction where he was probably going to move on to a different chapter in his life. Um, I am curious what other moves you think uh, Hopkins is going to do, and I'm not going to ask you like who he, who you think he's going to necessarily pick up. If you have some thoughts on that, please please offer them. But what other moves do you think he really needs to make in order to shake this thing up in in a way that? really becomes very proactive and, and very positive moving forward? Well, so really good question. And so Cam resigning, that was a, that was expected. Uh, my question is, you know, what happens moving forward with Coach Rice? Um, 
you know, and whether or not he has a place in the program moving forward. Um, and well, we don't have that answer. But I would say that Washington has a couple of needs um, that aren't being met or weren't being met with the current coaching staff, one of which was someone to work with the front court, with the bigs. You know, he had Dollar. Dollar was the bigs guy. Well, Dollar's, you know, he was, a, you know, he's kind of a legendary NCAA point guard, right? He's yep. a, and And so – I immediately see that as a big area of importance because we saw very little improvement, very little development out of really the entire roster over the last, you know, since Hop's been here. Um, so that's been a big deficiency. So they need someone who can work with the bigs. Um, to me, the biggest opportunities, at least on the recruiting front, um, they need someone who can hammer California. And I think a big um, – a big opportunity for Washington is overseas. Uh, Seattle's such an easy sell relative to just pretty much every other campus, um, you know, in the country. So I see that uh, those are two areas that Washington could improve considerably. They're not doing a great job in California, which is kind of critical to the excess, success of Washington in just about every sport. Um, so there's that. With Coach Rice, you know, he was a crack recruiter at UNLV. That was his thing. So I have yet to see, you know, where he's where that's manifested here at Washington. So to me, he's definitely in jeopardy, um, and I think rightfully so. Um, I don't I don't think there's any chance of Will going anywhere. So that's nothing that needs to be discussed. But um, Rice, I'm fifty fifty on whether or not he comes back. And what about Coach Hobby? Do you think that he also stays as well, or do you think because um, because I think there wasn't there a connection between him and, and Coach Rice as well. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, Chris. To be honest, okay. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I see a scenario where you're replacing two guys. Okay, you, you, but will you feel is safe? Will safe? Yeah, I, yeah. I think. Yeah, you'd be. You would be cutting off your nose to spite your face if you let Will go. And you talk too much to the table. You definitely talk about recruiting California a lot better, and and I'm thinking of of, of big time guys that came from California, and I'm thinking maybe Quincy Pondexter and who else? I mean, I well, know Bob Jones was Romar's very very first recruit, and I, and I know that they have gotten some other guys that were very highly thought of at the time, like a maybe like an Adrian Oliver or Darren Johnson mm-hmm. or something. But none of those guys really panned out, other than Q. Um, I'm trying to one. I'm trying to think. There's Let's some see. other. Did you say Bobby? I did Bobby, yeah, as as Romar's first guy. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm just going back through the list mentally. Um, well, regardless. Yeah. Well, what I was wondering, to be honest, I don't want to get stuck on that, but I'm wondering. Obviously, obviously talking about Will. How does how does Washington get a chance here to reframe the argument with the local guys? Because I know the Washington fans are going to point to a guy like Paolo Banchero and say that's a huge miss and whatnot. But the bottom line is you're getting a rent a player. He's only going to be at Duke for a few months. I think Washington's track record with the one and dones has been pretty horrific for whatever reason. I don't even get me started on why they've had a problem with one and done guys. I don't understand it. I don't know if I ever will. Um, but it, it just seems to be that way. I mean, other than Isaiah Stewart, I think Isaiah Stewart's probably been their most successful one and done guy. Um, even the number one draft pick with Markel Fultz, as good as he was at Washington, it just, it was, he was on an awful team. 
And even they had to shut him down at the end of the year because of injuries and whatnot. So I, I just wonder how they can reframe the argument with the local guys so that the, the Stevensons, the Bajamas, the, the, the Easons, the, the Browns and some of these other guys don't ever even think about going away. So I'll give you my answer. And I don't know if this is, so this would be probably in a scenario where you're replacing two coaches. One of the guys I'm looking really closely at that answers exactly what you're saying is Jamal Williams. Um, you know, he's taken rotary to, um, you know, some of the elite levels of, you know, club basketball on the, on the UIBL over the last two, three years. So he's done phenomenal there. Obviously he was a, you know, um, you know, highly polished, super capable, uh, post player for Washington and very, very much a, you know, lives in the, the fundamental world, right? He wasn't a freak athlete. Um, so great fundies, um, and an instant connection to Metro Seattle and Rotary, um, Garfield as well. So to me, he's a guy you have to look really care, uh, closely at. Um, he's kind of earned that spot. Now that's if you're focused on, if you need a guy, if you feel like you've not, you've got to double down on the Seattle area, which I am of the opinion they need to, um, to reestablish those connections. Um, I don't know what he brings you in terms of capabilities, you know, where I'm talking about in Southern California and, and kind of some of those key areas. But if you want to lock down Seattle, I'd look real closely at Jamal Williams. So I was going to say it, it, it sounds like, but you're, you're kind of advocating is more as a staff position, not necessarily as a coach, right? Does no, be- I'd be looking at him as a coach. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Gotcha. 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 Cause I know that there's been, there's been thoughts about maybe trying to create an opportunity on the staff and maybe a non-coaching role, but really handle kind of the, the recruiting aspects, like a director of recruiting or, Somewhere, maybe a director of high school relations or something that would allow them, um, maybe some opportunities to take advantage because it, it, there, there is, there is an opportunity there to, to kind of, like I said, to kind of reframe the discussion and to get guys thinking a little bit more about staying at home as opposed to what they've done in the past. Um, so we'll see how they approach that, but we've really, really gone way into the weeds on this. I really appreciate it beach for you hanging out and giving us your thoughts, but any, any final thoughts or anything else you want to give Washington fans kind of on your way out and talking about the, this last season and moving forward. No, I mean, it's been as rough on me as it has everyone else. I didn't enjoy watching it. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful for the future, but that hope is going to come from, outside people that are not in the program currently are going to come in and do new things. That's where the opportunities are going to come from. Um, so we got to watch the transfer market carefully. We got to, you know, there's also going to be, you know, there are going to be freshmen whose coaches are fired, you know, as before they're heading in, they're going to be an opportunity as well, because we're looking what the, the concern here, Chris, is that all these guys that we're talking about are, are band-aids, right? They're one or two year guys. As they're transferring in now, Eason's a, you know, he'll be a sophomore, right? But, um, or a junior. Yeah, I think he's going to have at least a couple of years. Yeah. And well, I think those are the guys that he's targeting. He's tar- I think Hopkins is really targeting. That's why Terrell Brown is an interesting outlier because mm-hmm. he's only going to have the one season where I think they would really ideally and optimally would want a guy that they could have for two or three years, like a Stevenson or a Bajma, right. that they could really integrate not only into what they want to do 
uh, on the court, but also just within their culture. Right. I agree with you. So yeah. they're kind of at odds with each other there. So, um, but I, I have to believe that opportunities will present themselves, you know, as the coaching carousel hits and, and, you know, the word gets out about, you know, there's a lot of playing time available at Washington right now. So that's definitely appealing. Um, but at the same time, nobody wants to play for a coach who's only going to be here a year. So that's a question too. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a great message for, you know, our listeners. Unfortunately, it's, uh, this is going to be a tough, very interesting, uh, off season. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just as curious as anybody else as to how it unfolds. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I'll just wrap it up real quick by giving a big thank you to Coach Dollar. Um, he's been, uh, a, a fix. I wanted to do that, Chris. Okay, go ahead. That's go why ahead. I was trying to interrupt you and no, go ahead. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you and I both know. I mean, we've both been around Coach Dollar over the years for a long time. He's an amazing guy. Um, and I've really enjoyed, you know, working with him. He's been so open to us and, um, you know, he's going to be missed. Uh, he was such a big part of turning this program into what it has become, right? That was his defense back in the, you know, back in the great years. He was the one barking from the sidelines and motivating those guys. And I know his, his former players all love him. So, um, you know, he'll be missed. Yeah. And, and there's no doubt because he's, he's gotten huge praise from guys like Isaiah Stewart, you know, or, or not, sorry, Isaiah Thomas. Um, even, you know, you hear get from guys like Justin Dentman. And some of those guys and going back all the way, um, you know, talking about how much Cameron Dollar influenced them and how much, uh, he's loved by a lot of his former players. So just want to echo that and, and, and give our best wishes to, to Cameron moving forward with his endeavors. And, um, you know, and I'll also link the, his, the, the foundation and, and the youth thing that he's doing, which I think is going to be phenomenal. So I really hope that the the next chapter in his life goes uh, really, really, really well. Um, as far as just going forward, you know, I think a lot of I think cautiously optimistic is is one way to put it. Um, you said interesting. Kim has said interesting. So we'll use, <laughs> we'll use interesting as the word going forward. Um, but I think Washington fans certainly have reason to be intrigued at the very least because of all the pieces that are going to fall. You mentioned it. Uh, Beach, right after the, the tournament's done, you're going to see a lot of coaching changes. You're going to see a lot of uh, names enter the transfer portal, and that's where the real fun's going to begin. And that's where you're going to get a great sense of just how hard Washington's going to fight for some of these kids to try to remake, um, you know, their roster and kind of reconstruct it in a way that gives them balance, that allows them to play the zone the way that Hop wants it to be played yet also gives them the offensive firepower where they can start from the first game of the year, hit the ground running, as opposed to waiting until halfway through the season before fighting their, finding their, their, their shooting, you know, shoes, so to speak. So, um, again, want to thank you beach for, for giving us all your insight, obviously not just throughout the year, but, but especially today, because this, you know, today for us, at least a dog man, it's kind of a, a benchmark because it, it, it really kind of puts a, a, a real end of that chapter. Last year is gone. It's in the way back machine already. And we can look forward to the 2021, 20, 22 season and try to see how this team is going to improve because it, at, on one level, there's no way they can't really improve. Um, but on the other level, we'll see 
by getting rid of this pandemic and allowing them to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy, how well that's going to play with Hopkins, with some new faces on his staff, with some new faces out on the court, losing some other guys, and how much that's going to play into um, their ability to kind of revamp things and really get things back on track the way they need to. Because if they can't get things back on track, then I think it, there, there's only going to be one way that this is going to end for, for Mike Hopkins, and it's not going to be pleasant. And unfortunately, that's the way we are right now in the world of college athletics. It's certainly a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately uh, type of situation. And um, obviously the pandemic has given a lot of coaches a little bit of extra time to kind of get things back on track, and he's right now in that situation. Um, so the time is now for him to really – build his plan, get things in place, and we'll see how it goes in the coming weeks and months. So for the head of hoops, Aaron Beach, this is Chris Fetters of Dogman.com. Go dogs. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount+. Plus. Paramount+, Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.